Well, good morning. Great to be with you. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of Rocky Peak. If this is your very first time, I want to welcome you. We're just every week excited to see what God's bringing, and it's happy to have you here. Hope you have a great time with us. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now, and every week uh, we do this. So there's inside your program is a message note sheet that will help you follow along, and so I encourage you to take that out. Definitely be a help, and if you guys are all set, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to go? Yep. All right, let's pray. God, we're just so excited to be here. It's so good to be worshiping you in your presence, seeking you together, and we are just excited about what you're going to be doing today, uh, what you're going to be teaching as our leader. We just pray that we'd come under your leadership, that you'd come be our teacher open our eyes to things that maybe we haven't seen, some things we've forgotten. Uh, teach us how to follow you and how to pursue a relationship that's truly a relationship, that's not a religion. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're continuing a series that we've been in now for the last couple months. And for those of you who are brand new, a uh, special welcome. Uh, this is a series called Jesus the King. And it's a series about the life and teaching of Jesus as taught through by, by one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus, uh, a man by the name of Mark, who is a close personal friend and associate of the Apostle Peter. And so he writes his, his, uh, his account of the life of Jesus uh, uh, based on the firsthand experience, uh, eyewitness stories of the Apostle Peter. And so uh, last week, or a couple of weeks ago, we started a brand new, uh, brand new section of uh, this, this letter, this, this gospel. Uh, it starts at chapter 2 of Mark. Uh, and in this chapter, what Mark's doing is he is laying out five uh, conflict events that happen early in the ministry of Jesus, where Jesus kind of begins to have a serious conflict with some of the religious leaders of the day that will eventually lead to his arrested execution a couple years later. And so uh, the, the first couple of weeks, we looked at two of the, two of the five first events. Uh, last week, we started the, the, with the third event, and we kicked off this new mini-series called Religion Kills. And so... Uh, where it's a three-week series, look at these, these final three conflict events. So today we come to conflict number four, and uh, the conflict was over the Sabbath. Now, uh, for us as modern-day uh, Christ followers, even if uh, you come from a Jewish background, chances are, uh, for, for most of us, we can't even begin to understand how big the Sabbath was in ancient Israel. In fact, there in your note sheet, I have a section called Israel 101, the Sabbath, and and I want to talk about this because uh, one of my goals in teaching through the life of Jesus is to really help us move away from flannel graph Jesus and old images we had of him and really step back into the first century what life was really like so we can understand who he was in his context, so we can understand like, who, who he is for us today, what it means to follow him. And so the Sabbath was, uh, was one of the, the, the great, uh, we call it a boundary marker of Judaism. Like in other words, uh, if you were to take a modern sociologist today, and have them describe to you the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus, there would be two great sociological boundary markers, things that set, set apart Israel from the Gentiles. And the first one was the Sabbath, and the second one was circumcision. Okay, so these are these two, two major things in their culture that you're an insider or outsider, you, you know, uh, the, the Sabbath and uh, circumcision. And so uh, uh, the, the, the tradition of uh, Sabbath had, had gone back to the very early days of their life as, as a nation. So uh, when the nation of Israel first came out of bondage in Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, God brought them to Mount Sinai, and he revealed himself in a very powerful way uh, there. And uh, he invited them into a relationship, much like a marriage relationship. We call it the covenant. He, he invited them into covenant. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. They said, yes, we want in on that deal. And so God says, well, if we're going to do that, here's some rules of relationship. 
Now, if you stop and think about it, every rule, every relationship has certain rules, written or unwritten. Um, and so, like, if you think about uh, marriage, for example, which is what, you know, God's comparing his relationship to Israel with, uh, there's certain rules, like, uh, that goes like this, like, for better or for worse, okay? That's, that's a rule. <laughs> Some of you are going, I hate that rule. Now, uh, uh, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to death do we part. And it's, part of that is forsaking all others, right? And so it's part of the deal when you get married. It's like you're not going to be dating around anymore. It's just every relationship has rules. And so God enters into relationship. He says there's certain rules. He had his top 10 list, kind of a David Letterman top 10 list uh, of rules. And uh, we call them, what do we call those rules? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. I hate that name um, be, because in Hebrew it's called the Ten Words. Okay, the Ten Words. And so these are kind of the rules of relationship. And, uh, and Jesus, when he, came, he said, you know, all those 10 rules of relationship, they're really just an explanation of, of what love looks like. It's uh, what it looks like to love God and to love one another in this new family, this new nation God is creating. And so, uh, and so, so rule number four on these rules of relationship was about the Sabbath. So the Sabbath begins Friday night at sundown, goes to Saturday night at sundown. And what God said is that, hey, you've come out of uh, slavery in Egypt and, uh, and, and that you've never had a holiday. You don't get days off. It's a very rough life. As we enter into this relationship, I'm your husband. You're my bride. I love you so much. I want to give you one day a week that's a holiday, like a paid holiday every week. And I'll take care of you. If you honor me, I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. So this is a day to rest. It's a day to reflect. It's a day to, to connect. Uh, it's a day to be restored. Uh, it's a day to, to play, to seek God, to connect with your family. The rabbis used to say, if you're married, it was a day to make love to your wife. And so it became a very popular day uh, in Israel. Um, and so it's this incredible gift that God gives to his nation. But, but by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders have come along and they've added all these man-made rules about what you can do and what you can't do and to the point to where the gift becomes a burden. And so I, I need to introduce you to an important concept. It's going to be a very important concept for uh, all of our study of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And it's the concept of the oral law. And I'd like you to write that down in your notes. You write this down. Oral law is a very, very important concept. At the time of Jesus uh, in Israel, there were two sources of authority. There was the written law, which was the word of God. The Law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then the rest of the Old Testament, uh, that was the Word of God. And this was their authority, just like for us as believers, the Word of God's our authority. Um, but the rabbis, over generation after generation, had created this long list of rules and regulations and interpretations of how you're to apply that Word of God to your life and to live it out. And we call this the oral law, okay? So you have the written law, you have the oral law. And at the time of Jesus, this was one of the greatest sources of conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders is because, as we'll see throughout Mark, he does not honor the oral law as authoritative. So to give you a feel for this, this oral law at the time of Jesus uh, was not really written down until about 170 years after Jesus. Okay? So about the year 200 A.D., the Pharisees finally got around to writing down the oral law. Now, it had been going on for generations, uh, and this was much of your training to become a rabbi, is you would memorize verbatim the oral law. So it was passed down very faithfully, but it wasn't until the year 200 
uh, they said, you know, we should probably write this down. So they write it down, and that written record of that is called the Mishnah, okay? If you're from a Jewish background, you may have heard that, the Mishnah. Now, so, so what scholars believe is that as they study the Mishnah, the time of Jesus and so on in Judaism, they believe the Mishnah, even though it's written in the year 200, it accurately portrays, for the most part, uh, the kind of the, the, the religious mindset and the rules of first century Judaism when Jesus was alive. And so in other words, by reading the Mishnah, you get a feel of what, what the Pharisees were teaching. Okay, you following this? Now, to give you a feel for this, I brought in a copy, my copy of the Mishnah. All right? So, so here he is. This is the Mishnah. Yeah, wow. Exactly. You see how big this sucker is? Okay, now look at the print. Right, this has no pictures. This is not a coloring book, right? Uh, so, so this is, helps us understand how extensive the oral law was at the time of Jesus. Now, in the Mishnah, there's a section on Shabbat on Sabbath. It goes for 37 pages of what you can do, what you can't do on the Sabbath. And the rabbis, time of Jesus, they had felt like God wasn't really clear enough on what constitutes work and rest. So God said, don't work on the Sabbath. Their thought was, you know, we need to nail this down. Um, and, and so they came up with 39 categories of things that constituted work. And then in each of the 39 categories were all these rules, how that worked out, uh, what's work, what doesn't work, okay? And it goes for 37 pages. Um, so there in your note sheet, I want to give you a feel for this, because I, I, I want to take us back to Israel and really get a feel of what it was like. So there in your note sheet, we're going to read a, a quote from the Mishnah. Okay, and this is, this is the actual quote, and this is the 39 category. So here we go. So the main classes of work, it cracks me up, these are the main ones. Uh, the main classes of work are 40 save one. Okay, so 39. Uh, here we go. Sowing, and he's talking about you know, planting seed. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, it's talking about the wool, not, not you, spinning, uh, weaving, here we go, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot. By the way, this is where sandals got started. Because on the Sabbath, you couldn't wear tennis shoes, right? Until people took the shoelaces out, which is where that started from, too. Uh, um, tearing in order to sew two stitches. No, I missed one. Sewing two stitches. Tearing in order to sew two stitches. Hunting a gazelle. Now, I'm not sure what the gazelle did to deserve this, but it's getting a lot of press. Hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up. Here we go. Writing two letters, like of the alphabet. Erasing in order to write two letters. So just thinking about it. 
building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, or taking something out from one domain to another, like from your kitchen to your shed. These are the main classes of work. Doesn't take them all, but these are the main classes, 40 save one. And then, then for each of these 39 categories, they're going to break it down into 37 pages. So I want to give you five examples, just so we go, we go back in time. So we do this. Okay, example number one. According to the rabbis, you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath, okay? But only six-tenths of a mile or less. Like beyond that, it became work. I think these guys needed a treadmill. They're not in very good shape, but anyway... Uh, number two, now no, catch this, what they're doing is they're taking God's word, which says, don't work. They're saying, that's not really not clear. We're going to add our man-made rule. Uh, we're going to say you can walk, but only six tenths. Did God ever say that? No, never said that. But they're going to add that just to clarify, okay? Here, here's the next one. Um, if you're a tailor or you're a scribe, so you, you, you work with a needle, you work with a pen, it was illegal for you to, to leave your house carrying either a pen or a needle because I'd be taking your work with you, even if you didn't do anything. Um, number three, um, if you started a job on the Friday, and remember, Sabbath starts Friday at sundown. If you start a job on the Friday, like let's say you're, you're going to dye some wool. So Friday morning, you take some wool, you put it in the vat of dye, and you leave it all day. You needed to pull it out by sundown. Like you couldn't just let it sit in there over the Sabbath, because that would be getting work done on the Sabbath. Now, here's my favorite that if your roof caves in, you're allowed to go through the rubble to see if any of your friends are in there. Okay? <laughs> and if they're alive, you're even allowed to pull them out. If they're dead, you need to leave them the next day. Now, if you pull them out and they're alive, you're allowed to administer first aid if they need it to stay alive. Anything else is not okay. So, Literally, if you have a dislocated shoulder, you cannot put that back in until Sabbath is over, okay? Now, now I want you to catch what's happened. Do you catch what's happened here? God gives this gift of Sabbath for rest, for restoration, a gift of love, for renewal, for relationship, for play, for prayer. Uh, God gives this amazing gift, and the religious people come along, and they add all these man-made rules to the place to where it become, the gift becomes a burden. You see, it's what religion does. Okay, so, so anyway, so what's going to happen today? Well, what's going to happen today is that Jesus and his men are going to be walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. And uh, as they're walking through, his men are going to be, they're hungry. They reach out and they, they run their hands through the grain. They pull off some heads of grain. And then they, they rub up in their hands to separate the husk from the kernel. And then they blow away the, the husk and they, they eat the grain. Pharisees are there and they're saying, oh, no, no this is Sabbath. You cannot do that. You just worked. You just, you reaped and then you threshed and then you winnowed on the Sabbath, right? And so this is their mindset. And so this is going to give Jesus a great chance to talk not only about the Sabbath, but about our relationship with God, how we view our relationship with God, and how we understand the Word of God. And so, uh, if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, you've got your notepads, whatever you're reading on, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 2, and we're starting there in your note sheet, it says the conflict number 4, the Sabbath. We're going to pick it up at chapter 2 and verse 23. 2.23. 
So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. His disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. And so the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the, the Sabbath? All right. So, um, so this was part of their oral law. All right. This is part of their oral law. So we talked about oral law, didn't we? Did we talk about oral law? Did I mention it? Did you write that down? Okay. So they all run together. All right. Um, so, yeah, so, so this was part of their oral law. You don't do this on the Sabbath. And so, um, and so they're, they're wondering what's up with that. So, Dave, uh, so Jesus is going to tell them a story. And uh, the story is an account in the Old Testament from 1 Samuel uh, 21. It involves, king, uh, it involves King David before he becomes king. In other words, David is the great hero of Israel. He's the great king. But on top of being the great king, he's also the forerunner of the Messiah. The prophets had said that through the, the line of David, the Messiah will come. And this may be why Jesus is, is choosing this story, because Jesus is the greater David, the greater the son that would come. But anyway, he tells a story about David. And so uh, here's how it goes. Uh, one point in his life, David is on the run from King Saul. Now you remember this, that uh, David comes on the, the scene, kills Goliath, becomes a national hero overnight, front page news, his, his, his Twitter account's blowing up. Uh, everyone wants to follow David, and, and so everyone, you know, he marries the king's daughter, his best friend with the king's son, uh, and so he's, he's very popular, and so at a certain point, King Saul gets nervous about this, afraid he's going to make a run for, to, for being the king, and so uh, he, he sets out, uh, kind of sends out a warrant for his arrest and for his, his death, and so David gets wind of this, and he has to run for his life. No time to go back home, get your weapons, pack your backpack, get some food. So he heads north out of Jerusalem, goes about a, a mile north to a little town called Nob. And at Nob or Nob uh, is where the tabernacle is, a special tent where God would, uh, the nation of Israel would worship uh, God. And so, of course, he knows the priest there. He's the darling of the nation. They see him coming up, and they're like, hey, David, great to see you. And he says, hey, listen, uh, he concocts this story, which is a whole other issue, but he concocts this story. He says, hey, I'm on, he says, uh, uh, the king has sent me on this urgent mission, and it's so urgent, I didn't really have time to go home and pack, get my weapons, get some food. So do you have any extra food or weapons here that I can have for this mission? And so they said, we really don't have any extra food. We haven't been to Costco this week. Uh, and so... Uh, but he said, we, we do have the, the bread of the presence. Well, there's a special bread. In Leviticus chapter 24, God had made this very clear to the nation that every week the priests were to, break, uh, to, to bake a new batch of holy bread, make it into 12 loaves uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, spread it out in two rows of six before the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, uh, and that this bread was to be holy bread, and that every Sabbath you would remove it out, uh, and then it could be eaten, but only by the priests and only on site. You couldn't take it home and only by the priests. So it was very clear legislation in the law of God, in the word of God, about this bread. And so David, uh, the priest says, that's the only bread I have. And David just kind of makes a plea for this. You know, it's kind of a life or death situation for him. He's on the run. He's, you know, there's no shops around. There's 7-Eleven around. He's got to get some food. And so, so the priest agrees to give it to him. Now, the interesting thing is, is that though David is clearly violating the, the ceremonial word of God, uh, he's clearly violating it. Uh, nothing happens to him. God's not upset with him. And so what Jesus' point is that, you know, the whole way you guys read the word of God is, is wrong. And, and so, listen, here's a great example where there was something more, there was a higher law than the ceremonial law. And, and so Jesus begins to set the stage now for teaching him about the Sabbath, okay, and how we interpret the word of God. And so here we go. So verse 25 
he says, uh, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, and actually in 1 Samuel 21, if you were to go there, a man named Ahimelech was the high priest in this story. He had a son named Abiathar. I'm sure he was there with him, serving with him. And, and after David became king, Abiathar was high priest for most of his 40-year reign. And so it's kind of in the days of Abiathar, that seems to be what Mark is saying. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, um, he enters into the house of God. He eats the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Point being, God didn't strike him dead. Uh, often in the Old Testament, when there's violations of the law, the temple, that someone gets in serious trouble, God doesn't, doesn't do that at all. It was okay with God, apparently. And so, so Jesus says, okay, so, let's, so he's starting to, to change the way they're looking at the law, change the way they're looking at Scripture. And then he makes a statement, and I got to tell you, for me, this is one of the most important statements of Jesus in all the New Testament, one of the most important statements for understanding who God is, who we are, the relationship he calls us to. And here's what he says. He says, uh, let's read it together. He says, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for whom? For man. Uh, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath. Okay, so, so Jesus says basically your whole way of reading your Bible is wrong. Uh, the whole way you're approaching the Word of God is wrong. The whole way you're approaching Sabbath is wrong. You're looking at Sabbath as if uh, Sabbath was made as this religious hoop for people to jump through. Like Sabbath came first and now, uh, as human beings, like God wants us to jump through this, that the whole point that, that he made Sabbath become an arbitrary rule, this rule doesn't make a lot of sense, and that our job as human beings is to jump through this religious hoop that doesn't make any sense in order to show God we're serious about loving him, pursuing him, and like this just kind of this religious rule. He says, that's how you're looking at the Sabbath. He says, that's not why God gave us the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made uh, for us. It was for our blessing. It was for this incredible gift, this day once a week to just shut down uh, life, turn off your cell phones, don't call the office, wives don't cook in the, in, in the kitchen, laundry's not done, you hang out as a family, you seek God together, you play together, you have games, you make love to your wife. It's this incredible gift that God has given and you've turned it around and made it into this religious thing as if we exist to carry out this arbitrary set of rules. He says, your whole, the whole way of looking at God in relationship and the way, it's all backwards, right? And so then he goes on, and he says, and because of this, next verse, so he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, we need to talk about this term, Son of Man. It's come up once before in Mark. I didn't stop there, uh, but I want to stop now. Uh, the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite term for himself. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. In the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, the, Daniel has a series of visions about the kingdoms that will come before the end of the world. And all these kingdoms, each of these kingdoms is represented by a beast, these crazy looking beasts, wild animals. And then at the end of this vision, uh, he sees the coming of a, of, of, it looks like a human being. And so in, in the vision, Daniel says, I saw one that was coming and he looked like a son of man. In other words, a, a human being. And, and he says, uh, and he was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he received this kingdom that will never end, the kingdom of God, and everyone worshipped him, okay? 
So the rabbis had tried to figure out who was this son of man. And there were lots of different opinions. Some thought it was kind of like a Messiah figure. Someone thought it was a different kind of supernatural figure. Uh, some thought it, was, it represented the nation of Israel in some ways. Uh, so it was different theories, but no one really knows. But Jesus, when he comes, he takes this name as his name. That he truly is, first of all, a son of man. He's a, hu- he's a human being. But secondly, he is the son of man, the one that's coming on the clouds of heaven to receive a kingdom. He's the king of the coming kingdom. And of course, this whole message about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, I am that king. And so what he's saying here, he says, listen, the Sabbath was made as a gift for Israel. And as the king of Israel, I have the authority as the one bringing the kingdom to rule on the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I, I have the authority to tell you what is okay, what isn't okay. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. But it's really interesting because Jesus, remember, remember the gospel of Mark starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. So we know from the beginning who this figure is. Remember, the disciples don't know this. And so little by little, Jesus is revealing who he is. So a couple weeks ago, we saw when he healed the paralytic, he said, my son, your sins are forgiven. And he says, so you may, the, you may know the son of man has authority to forgive sins. And Jesus begins revealing who he is, that he's claiming to do something only God can do, forgive sins. Last week, we saw him coming as the great bridegroom of Israel, a, a name, a figure that was used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. And Jesus is taking that to himself. This week, we see that Jesus stands over the law itself, and he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, one of the two great boundary markers of Israel, and say, I have authority over the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting. Um, you know, Jesus was, a, was a, a good Jew. We forget this sometimes. And as a good Jew, he was born under the law of God, the Old Testament law of God, and he kept the law of God. Uh, and so as a Jew, there's no question in my mind that every weekend he would, go to Sab- he would go to synagogue and worship on the Sabbath. He would honor the Sabbath because he was a good Jew. So what Jesus was doing here was not so much saying that the Sabbath doesn't matter. He's just saying that the way you interpreted the Sabbath is off base. It's fine to go through the fields and eat the grain. There's nothing wrong with that. This, this day was given as a gift, not a burden. You've turned into a burden. But it's also true that with the coming of Jesus and with his life and his death and resurrection, then we move into a whole new era of human history. And remember last week, Jesus said that you have to have new wineskins for the new wine. There's times where it's changing. And so what we see is with the life and death of Jesus, that many of the old rules and laws, the ceremonial laws that were required of Israel, that were like training wheels to help them grow in their relationship with God, that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, then those training wheels are no longer needed. They have served their purpose. And so as we move out in the New Testament, some of these great boundary markers of Israel, you think of them, uh, circumcision, um, the Sabbath, um, kosher, eating kosher, clean and unclean, uh, the, the feasts, that all these things that have characterized Israel, as the gospel goes out into Gentile lands, we learn that we're no longer, as Christ followers, under those laws. They were, they were for a time. Paul says they were the shadow coming from the reality, leading to the reality. And so as followers of Jesus today, we, we're not under the Sabbath law the same way that they, uh, Israel was then, but I'm sure Jesus kept it. 
uh, because he was fulfilling all the law. And I think for us, just a little quick little sidebar, as followers of Jesus today, the concept of Sabbath is a beautiful concept. And I think we would all be healthier if we took it to heart. If there was one day a week where maybe it's not a specific day, but we set aside the normal things of life. It's a time for family. It's a time for seeking God. It's a time for uh, growth and time for relationship, for, for, for healing and for prayer and for playing and all those kinds of things that rejuvenate what fills our cup, those kinds of things, all right? So that's the passage. Um, the passage conflicts over Sabbath. In the time that we have today, what I want to do is just kind of unfold this, focus on a couple principles that flow out that really come into this topic of, of religion versus relationship and how religion kills. And so there in your note sheet, just two points. Uh, number one is that uh, the first thing that this, this story says to me is that religion, one of the marks of religion is it distorts God's image. In other words, we all have an image of God. Like if we have the technology, maybe we will someday, to show what you're thinking. When I say God, certain image comes to your mind, who God is. And if we could project it up on the screen, it'd be really interesting. And, and so uh, uh, religion distorts that image of who God is. Okay, so, so for example, let's take the Sabbath. The nation of Israel, they come out of Egypt and, and God rescues them from slavery. What a beautiful thing that was, being set free. It's emancipation, proclamation of Israel. They're set free from, from bondage. God brings them to Mount Sinai. He enters into covenant with them. I will be your husband. You will be my bride. They say, I do. It's this beautiful love relationship. And God says, and so uh, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. I've got this, this, this real estate I've chosen for you. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Mountains and hills and streams. And it's, it's a rich land. And it's going to be an incredible place for you. It's going to be the center of the, the human world. It's going to be right of uh, the globe. It's going to be right there. And it's going to be incredible place from which you can have influence for, for all of, uh, of, of, uh, of life. And so I'm going to get, and if you trust me, I will bless your life and I'll bless your crops and I'll bless your families and I'll bless you financially and I'll protect you from your enemies. And so God comes as this husband wooing this wife and loving on her. And he says, as part of that love, I want to give you, make sure every day you get one day off a holiday to refresh and reflect on the meaning of life so you can live life well. It's an incredible gift, you see. It was a gift of relationship. It flew out of relationship. Okay, but what happens is that by the time of Jesus, uh, this gift has become a burden. But catch this, in the process, the image of God has been defaced. The image of and No longer is God the lover, the husband, who's loving his people and giving them a gracious gift of their love. In the process, by the time of Jesus, God was seen so many times as a God who is harsh, hard to please, irrational, who makes up arbitrary religious rules for us to jump through to show how much we love him, and if we don't, he's going to get us. Okay? Now, no show of hands here. How many of you have grown up with that image of God in your life? You've grown up with the image that God is not for you, he's against you. In order to please him, you have to do all these kind of things that make no sense. And if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. If you do, you're going to be blessed. That God's not for you. He's against you. He's harsh. He's unreasonable. He's uncaring. He's mean. 
Like how many of us have grown up with that? See? And so one of the primary reasons Jesus comes is to restore the truth about who God is. In fact, in John's gospel, he says, in chapter one, he says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He said, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, the Son of the Father, he's revealed him. This is why Jesus come to restore. And here's Jesus in action today, restoring the image of God. He says, listen, the way you're looking at God, the way you're looking at his, his word, the law, it's all backwards. You've got the wrong end of the telescope. You, you've, you've looked at this, you're looking as if God, this law he's given you about the Sabbath, as if you are created for the Sabbath. You've got it all backwards. It was created as a gift to you. You see, the whole way you're interpreting. And this principle goes out so much bigger than the Sabbath. What Jesus is helping us to understand is God is always for us. He's never against us. And and any law that God gives us is to protect us, not to restrict us. And so Jesus is challenging their whole mindset. But this is what religion does. It, it, It distorts the image of God and it distorts the image of his word. And so the question, here's the question I have for you, is that when you think of God in your life, do you think of him as for you or against you? And when you think of his word, do you think of his word as protective or as restrictive? You see? And so, so many of us, we struggle with this. When we come up to something in God's word that says go left and we want to go right, do this, not do that, For so many of us, we struggle with this because deep in our heart, our image of God is he's not for us, he's against us. And so we come to a a, a part of his word that says this is what we're supposed to do and and we don't like it and it's hard to do, we tend to rebel against it because deep in our heart, we think it's it's that we've been created for that law. We we don't understand who God is and why he would give it. You know, I shared this last night uh, spontaneously and I didn't get shot, so I've been sharing it this morning. But uh, let, let me give you an illustration from my own life. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a follower of Jesus, but I'd grown up in a church that, that certainly had some, some real relationship, but there was a lot of religion, as a lot of churches did at the, that time. And, uh, and so there's certain, there's certain rules. You just knew as Christians, you're not supposed to do. And one of those is, is, as a Christ follower, we understand this, that one of the laws God's given us is we're to be morally pure, that we're to... Uh, we're, we're to be sexually pure, we're to sleep with a spouse and no one else, that, that God has created kind of one woman, one man for a lifetime of love, sex is for, for that relationship, any sex outside of that relationship is not legit, and, and it's damaging, so, so we understand that, right? But as a 15-year-old kid, right, it's a 13-year-old kid, it's a 14-year-old kid, a 15-year-old kid, see, it, those areas of my life, I didn't understand that at all, and I didn't have any good teaching on this. I, I was just taught you weren't supposed to have sex, right? So when you're a 15-year-old boy, what's the most important thing in your life? Okay, I'll speak for all of us. <laughs> Having sex, right? And so I'm desperately trying not to have sex with my girlfriend, pushing boundaries. So I, I'm desperate because I, I really want to follow Jesus, and the rule is don't have sex. But to be honest, I could figure out no good reason for this. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Life would be so much better. It'd be so awesome. You just have sex with anyone you wanted. If you really cared about them, you love one another, like what's wrong with that? 
You know, like, wouldn't that be great? But so I'm, so I'm trying to hold on to this, right? Trying to follow Jesus, hold on to this world, but there's no rationale for it. There's no understanding of it. I'm seeing God's word as restrictive, not protective. So, so years later, right, years later, as a follower of Jesus, I begin to grow. I get to know Jesus. I begin to understand how much he loves me, how his rules are always to protect, never to restrict. I begin to understand that sex is this powerful, unifying force. And when you give yourself to someone else, there's this bond that takes place. And when it's for a lifetime, it's a powerful bond that, to, to bring a, a man and woman together for the rest of their lives. But, but when you're sleeping with someone, not your husband, you're bonding you're bonding yourself to someone uh, and then you're eventually tearing that apart and there's a ripping of the soul that takes place and there's a loss of yourself that happens. And so years later, I begin to understand that this was for me, not against me. But when I'm 15, I don't get this. And when I'm 15, I'm trying to think, why would God ever say this? And I can't think of any good reason. In fact, the only reason I came up with was if I sleep with my girlfriend and people find out, it would be a bad testimony. So I began thinking, kind of fantasizing, what if I were to go a thousand miles away where no one knew me? Then it wouldn't blow my testimony, right? Makes sense, right? It makes sense with religion, you see? And so uh, in, in our lives, this is what religion does. Religion tends to distort our image of God. And Jesus says, no, 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 you, you, the Sabbath, we're not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us, you see. And so he's come to, to restore that, that confidence of who God is. Okay, number two. Number two uh, goes like this. That religion adds to God's word. One of the marks of, of religion is it adds to God's word. Now, we talked about this with the oral law. God says, uh, take a day off, rest. Uh, the Jews come along, the, 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 uh, the Pharisees come along, and they begin to add rules. Well, that's not specific enough. That's not clear enough. We need to spell this out. So we have 39 categories, and here's what you can do, and here's what you can do. So we begin to add man-made rules to what God has said, and here's what happens. When we add man-made rules to what God has said, catch this, God's word brings life. Man-made rules added on to God's word rob the life that was meant to give us. It destroys the life. And so it's easy to see that here with the Sabbath. Um, we, it's easy for us to look back and see, look how they did this. They take this incredible gift. They add all these man-made rules. Now you can't even pull your buddy out who's got a dislocated arm and fix it on the Sabbath, which kind of totally changes your view of who God is, right? It distorts that image. But, but now you've, you've begun to add all these rules. And so it's easy to look back and to see that in the life of Israel. And to say, how crazy is that? We could laugh about it, two stitches, and how ridiculous and that is. But you know what? Religion is the curse of the human race. And remember what we learned last week, that we all have a natural tendency to take a relationship and to turn it into religion. And so we do it in our time, don't we? Uh, think with me, last week we, I gave a great illustration of this where uh, what's the word of God say? The word of God says, 
If you want to draw close to God, pursue God, know God, love God, if you want to be changed by God and you want to be used to impact the world, it's really important that on a regular basis you get aside and you spend time with God one-on-one. That's what the Word says. And so Jesus models that for us. Uh, Jesus says, if, uh, he says, when you pray, go by yourself in the closet, you see you and God. And so the word teaches it, Jesus models it. But we come along as Christ followers and say, okay, Jesus, we don't think that's specific enough. Okay, so here, here's the word. You need to spend time with God on a regular basis in order to grow. And we say, we need to make that more specific. And so we talked about this last week. So we said, okay, so we're gonna add some rules. Like, well, you need to spend time with God every day. Right? And then you need to spend time with God in the morning, because that's when God gets up. And then we need to, and then we need to, and then it needs to be X amount of time we need to spend time with God, and then it needs to be pray, follow this pattern. Remember how we talked about this last week? And so what have we done? We've taken the Word of God, and we've added our own version, catch this, of oral law. And the oral law becomes more important even than the written law, and it chokes the life out of the law that was meant to give us life. When I was a boy, I think, think back when I was a boy, uh, some of you will remember this. In, in many parts of the country today, it's still this way today, but in California, we're not so much that way. And but maybe, maybe some of you have come from back, you can relate to this. When I was a boy, there were certain, when I was growing up, there were certain oral laws and traditions in my, my brand of church that, uh, so here's what Christians should do and shouldn't do. For example, in my church, Christians should not drink Okay, that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. Oh, they could drink water, but not drink alcohol. Okay, it should be more clear. You should not drink alcohol, right? Now, now, now why? Well, because the Bible says don't get drunk. And so if you never drink, you'll never get drunk, right? So uh, the rabbis actually had a term for this. The rabbis call it putting fences around God's law. So they said, if, if this is what the law says, let's put a fence way back here just to make sure we never get close to violating it, okay? So, so in my church, like, Christians didn't drink in spite of the fact that Jesus had made 150 gallons <laughs> of really good wine, so much so that when they brought his wine out, the steward, the head, the head MC says, this is cool, man, because... Typically at a wedding, we give the good stuff first, and then after everyone's had a little too much to drink, we bring out the two-buck chuck. <laughs> this is awesome. You've saved the good wine for last. So it's clearly alcoholic, right? And, and so, but, but in my church, you didn't, didn't do that. Um, in, in, my, in my world growing up, Christians didn't dance, right? Because I guess they had no rhythm or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Kind of like Elaine on Seinfeld. Um, but uh, but that, no, Christians don't dance. That, that was kind of this rule, right? Um, in, in my world growing up, um, that there were certain kinds of music you don't listen to. And it was music that had a certain kind of beat, a beat that came from Africa and was satanic. If you're not familiar with this, this is the beat that we use for all our worship music today. <laughs> all right. And so there are all these man-made oral laws, right? And so it's easy to look back and oh, yeah, probably most of us are not struggling with that. Say, for some of you, that might be, oh, it's the wrong church for me. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, 
but, but I think most of us probably go, yeah, that's kind of, we can see how ridiculous we can be. We, yeah, we get that, you know, that's, yeah, we get that. Okay, well, let's bring a little closer to home. I, I remember when I first came to Rocky Peak. Now, many of you will, most of you were not here when I first came to Rocky Peak. There's a reason for that. But, um, <laughs> but, but uh, for those of you who were here, most of you probably have amnesia about this, about my experience. I think the Holy Spirit wiped your minds of this. But no lie, for the first year I was here, I wore suits and sport coats on stage. No, it's, it's true. It's a true story. It's a true story. I wish I had a picture. Uh, and uh, in about a year into being here, I felt like God began putting on my heart, Mike, if you're going to reach unchurched people, like you need to tear down any walls or obstacles that would keep them from coming to church. Like if you invite a non-Christian friend to come, he doesn't have, he doesn't have a suit, doesn't have a tie. And, and so... If he says, I can't come to church, I don't need to dress right, you can just say, just come as you are, right? And so, so that would be cool. And so I just felt like God was putting on my heart. That caused a lot of angst in this church, okay? What was particularly offensive was wearing sandals on stage. I don't know why, but this was particularly offensive. Um, and I was, of course, faithful to point out that this is what Jesus wore, <laughs> But it didn't really seem to help because part of our oral law in American Southern California Christianity was there's certain ways you dress coming to church. It's part of the oral law. Part of that oral law is that God is honored when you take a long piece of silk, you tie it around your neck hard so you can't breathe. <laughs> and then you worship him as an act of true sacrifice. <laughs> that was part of the oral law, right? Now, just to be clear here, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with dressing up or dressing down. Uh, there's good reasons for both in different situations. Nothing wrong with that. But why don't you catch, it was part of the oral law of Rocky Peak, right? That this is, there's certain ways you dress. I remember one dear lady coming to me, and I truly mean that. I remember coming to me one night and saying, Mike, jeans are not for stage, I can, I can hang with you, not suit, but, but you cannot wear jeans on stage. Jeans are for the garden. In spite of the fact that in many of our stores in L.A., jeans cost more than suits nowadays. <laughs> not my jeans, by the way, but just, <laughs> just lucky brand. Uh, I remember this came to a head at one point. This was a big deal. I mean, people are leaving the church. People who liked me and liked the teaching are leaving the church over this. And, and I remember it came to a head. One, one day, a man asked to meet with me. He was a leader in the church, had been here for a long time, a godly man in many ways. And uh, he asked to meet with me. And he had sent me several articles about how important it is the way we dress and what that projects about who we are, and blah, blah, blah. And I'd read those articles, and so he wanted to meet. And so I'll never forget, we met there about 20, 30 minutes. We talked through the issues, cordial conversation. At the end of it, though, he said to me, Mike, here's what I think. He said, I'm convinced. He said, let me, let me tell you a story. He says, I'm convinced that even, he said, about a week ago, I found out that there's a man in our church that was going to give 5 to $10 million to Rocky Peak when he dies but he's pulled you out of the will because of the way you're dressing. My guess is 
you wouldn't change even for that. And I said to him, well, of course I wouldn't change. I, I feel like Jesus has called me to do this. Why would I sell my soul for 5 to $10 million, right? Oral law, and we all do it. We all do it. We, we come up with these certain ways of this is the way it is or this is the way it should be, and we add rules to what God has said. And trust me, when we do it, it steals the life. And so, so what do we do? Well, as followers of Jesus, we've been given the Holy Spirit. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to come before him and we need to ask him. We need to say, Jesus, I want to please you. I want to know you. I want to pursue you. I want to be used by you. And so there's certain things in your word that have been made very clear. And I want to hold on to those things. But there's going to be other middle ground things that you've not been clear on that Maybe they're not right or wrong in themselves. I'm just going to need some guidance. And we're going to need let the Holy Spirit guide us in these areas. So there in your note sheet, great, great passage. This has been such an influential verse in my life. Uh, Proverbs 35 and 6. Uh, every word of God is what? Flawless. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. It is smart. It is brilliant. And it's true. Every word of God is what? Flawless. Let's say it again. Every word of God is what? Flawless. Okay? And he says, so he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. In other words, when you come under his leadership and you follow his word, it becomes a shield of protection, of blessing for your life. Okay? But he says, but then he goes on, he says, do not add to his what? Do not add to his words. Or he will what? Rebuke you and prove you a liar. Why? Because when we add to his words, like the Pharisees did, we have now distorted the image of who God is. We've, we've lied about who he is. We've lied about how you have a relationship with him. We're taking people away from him. And so he says, the word of God is faultless. Hold on to it with all your mind and soul. When it makes sense, when it doesn't make sense, you trust that God loves you. He's brilliant. He's wise. He cares about you. He's leading you in the path of life. His word is absolutely faultless. And so you hold on with both hands and you never let go of the word of God in your life. But you resist the temptation to add to his word because when you add to his word and you create oral law, uh, it prove, he'll prove you a liar. You see? And so here's the challenge for us as followers of Jesus to hold on to his word, uh, but to resist the temptation to add to his word. But here's what's going to happen. As you come before Jesus, as you give him your life, as you say, I want to pursue you, can I promise you this? The Holy Spirit will give you some directives for your life that are very specific. And when the Holy Spirit gives you directives, they are going to be life-giving. And so for some of you, the Holy Spirit's going to say, I want you to get up at 5.30 every morning and spend an hour with me every day. It's going to change your life. And it's the word of God to you. And it's a word of relationship to you because it flows from the Holy Spirit to your heart, his heart to yours. He knows you. He understands you. He knows the plans he has for you. And he is going to, as you listen and as you follow the word of the Holy Spirit, it's going to transform your life and transform your relationship with Jesus. And you're going to be usable and you're life is going to change because it flows out of relationship. All right? Amen. Amen. Okay. 
The danger is when you turn to your brother and you say, my life has been transformed like this, and so this becomes oral law for your life. That's when, it, when, that's when the law, the word of Jesus, begins to kill us. As we take the word of God to us personally, and we begin to put it on others. You know, years ago, I came across a, a great interview with uh, Matt Chandler. Matt's a, the, uh, he's a pastor of a large church in Texas, coming nationally owned church. It's called The Village. And, and he was talking about this. And uh, he says there on your notes, you follow along. He says, sanctification here at The Village. And sanctification is the theological term for change, that we go through a change process when we come to Jesus to become more like him. And so sanctification here at The Village begins by answering two questions. I love this. What stirs your affection for Jesus Christ and what robs you of those affections? Here's how I like to put it. Here's the question. I'd like you to write this down. Remember last week I gave you the relationship grid. Run Run your decisions through the relationship grid. Here's the question, the powerful question. As you're seeking God, as you're seeking the Holy Spirit, Uh, change your minds. Here's a question you need to get. What fuels your passion for God and what drains it? What fuels your passion for God? What drains it? There's a lot of things that are neither right nor wrong in themselves. They're not uh, moral absolutes. They're they're kind of gray areas, but but they're things that as you, so, so God has a plan for your life. There may be certain things for you to see, certain things for you to watch, certain things for you to wear, to eat or drink, priorities, the way you spend your money. There's all kinds of things that they're not clear uh, guidelines in the word uh, about these things. They're kind of morally neutral in some ways, but the Holy Spirit's gonna give you a specific direction. And so the question is, what fuels your passion for God and what robs it, what drains it? So he goes on. And he said, many of the things that stifle growth are morally neutral. They're not bad things. Facebook's not bad. Television and movies are not bad. I enjoy TV, but it doesn't take long for me to begin to find humorous on TV what the Lord finds heartbreaking. Okay? And so, for example, as you're watching TV, are you asking the question, Holy Spirit, is this something I should be watching? And what may be fine for you is not fine for someone else, but we need to be asking that question because we're filling our minds with it, right? And so we need to be, Holy Spirit, would you guide me? He says, the same falls, uh, goes for following sports. He says, it's not wrong, but he says, but if I start watching sports, talking about his own life, I begin to care too much. I get stupid. If 19-year-old boys are ruining your day because what they do with a ball during March Madness, <laughs> that's a problem. These things rob my affections for Christ, and I want my life to fill my life with things that stir my affections for Him. We want our people to think beyond what's right and wrong. We want them to fill their lives with things that stir their affections for Jesus Christ, and as best they can, to walk away things that rob those affections, even when they're not immoral. Do you catch this? There's certain things in the Word that are right. There's certain things that are wrong. We're all clear on that. Okay, we're clear on that. We follow those things. The Word of God is faultless. But there's a lot of areas that, like, well, what, where's the place of video games in my life? Where's, where's the place of uh, hobbies in my life? Where's the place of uh, motorcycle riding in my life? Where's the place of sports in my life? Where's the place of money and how I spend my money? There's a lot of area where the Bible doesn't give super clear guidelines. And so, 
he's saying that in these areas, uh, are we going before God and saying, God, show me, give me wisdom, what things are adding to my passion, what things are taking away? Let, let me give you a couple examples from my own life. Um, when my kids entered into junior high and high school, into junior high, I felt like the Holy Spirit put on my heart, it took me totally by surprise, that I was not supposed to drink alcohol or have it in our house during their junior high and high school years. I just felt it clearly from the Lord. And so uh, I followed that. I didn't put it on anyone else. I would never teach you that. Like they're supposed to do that. I'm just saying, for me, I felt like the Holy Spirit put that in my, my life. Now, after they left high school, I started drinking again. <laughs> and it may be that it was during the high school years, God didn't want alcohol there for me because I would have had too much. You know? um, I think of my life. A lot of you know I'm a Charger fan. Ooh, yeah. Except for now. Um, and, of course, I was a Charger fan when they used to be really good. It's a long time ago. Um, but, I, man, I can get into sports. Like, I'm telling you, when the Chargers were playing, I can think back when our old house back there and back when the kids were young. When the Chargers, man, I was in the Chargers. And if the Chargers lose, you don't want to be around me, Right? Because literally, I would be depressed and angry for four to five hours. Right? I would have to go on a walk, get out of the house. Right? Because I was just like so angry. I just cared about this team like, so much. And so, so there came a time where God, the Holy Spirit, uh, really surprisingly again, right before the start of his season one year, I just felt like he was saying, I want you to give up sports for now. And trust me, it wasn't even that hard, even though I was so passionate. It's like when the Holy Spirit's leading you, he's putting a desire in your heart, and it's just kind of responding to that desire. And as I respond to it, I said, okay. Uh, and you know what? That, that, that fast from sports lasted for 10 years. 10 years, they were important years to focus on some other things, my family and whatever. You see, because what had happened is for me that that... That, that passion for sports was taking that passion away from Jesus and my family and those different things like that. So, so now during those 10 years, formative years, I had more time for my family. Those things. Now, am I putting that on everyone? Not at all. I'm just saying this is how it works. As a follower of Jesus, as you go before him and you ask him, there'll be times that he will lead you. And when he is leading you, trust me, it is life-giving. Because it flows out of relationship. And when he's not leading you, when it becomes oral law, and we begin to put the rules of our life on others, it steals the very life of God out of them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word and the way it restores us to relationship, the way it calls us away from religion. We thank you for this beautiful teaching of Jesus today. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And God, we just pray that you continue to create here at Rocky Peak a church that has a passion for you, that the answer that, 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 the answer that, that, that we're asking from you, that we're seeking you, God, we just want to grow in our passion, show us those things that fuel our passion, show us those things that rob, even in things that may be morally neutral, God, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's these hobbies, but whatever it is, there's things in our life, God, that are stealing that passion, and, and that you, if we ask you, you will show us, and they will lead us to life. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be a church that stands on the word of God, that the word of God is faultless, uh, and that we hold on to it with both hands. We never let go. We never compromise. But on these other things that are oral law that are not coming from you, 
that, God, we would resist the temptation to bow down before them. We would resist the temptation to put them on others and to create a community of religion that robs us of relationship. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. You'd give us wisdom to discern the difference. And we pray as we go into worship now, as we, we talk about your sweet redemption, that you've redeemed us from uh, our fallen life so we can have a true relationship. We can have the forgiveness of sins. We have the gift of your spirit that allows us to have a true relationship. We pray that you'd help us to revel in that and to never abuse it, never to use it as an excuse for laziness or license, but that we use it as, a, as something that motivates us to pursue you with a whole heart to be led by your spirit. And we pray as we use these, as we bring our gifts and our offerings, you'd create this, use them to create a place where relationship reigns, where Jesus reigns. And true relationship is found. We, we pray, God, as we get ready for Easter next week, we pray this week for those that you will be bringing that are far from you. We pray for those that uh, right now you'll be putting on our hearts this week for us to invite to come and enter into relationship, to leave religion behind and to seek relationship with the king. God, we pray that you'll use these gifts to create a place where that is happening every week of the year uh, for your name and for your renown. We pray it for the sake of that name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? Hey, I hope you can be with us next week. We, we will not continue this series, Religion Kills, next week. It'll be Easter weekend. We'll come back to that the week, finish it the week after. Uh, but next week is be a great opportunity for us to invite people to come and, and to see what God is doing, to kind of, kind of enter a relationship with, with Jesus in their own life. I want to remind you of that, that inside your program, you have these invite cards with more at the point, at the information booth if you need them. But uh, they have the, the times of our services next weekend. So let me just walk you through real quickly. Uh, next Friday, we start with Good Friday services, 5 and 6.30 here in the main auditorium, child care for I think 5 and under, something like that. It's in the program. Uh, and then on the weekend, we'll have our three regular weekend services uh, at 5.30 and 9 and 11. Now, they're going to be well attended, typically are. And so, uh, so I would encourage you to get here early. Uh, because uh, it's going to take longer to get in, park, your kids, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, remember next week that parking will be crazy. Uh, and remember that you are Christians. Um, so as followers of Jesus, you're required to be kind. Um, and also, uh, remember this, that this is campus. We're going to have just hundreds and hundreds of people that are not normally here. People that don't maybe know Christ, that come out of religion or maybe they come because they're hungry to know God, but they're not, they're, you know, they don't know where to take their kids, they don't know where to stand, they don't know where to sit, they don't know uh, how to get information, they don't know the cafes, they don't know any of that stuff. And so I just want to challenge you, when you come next week, uh, don't come with the mindset of a consumer, uh, come with the mindset of a kingdom person. This is one of our best opportunities all, all year to reach out to people who are far from God, just to invite them, to encourage them. So if in your own life, uh, be open to the Holy Spirit this week. He may be someone that you know that he would love you to invite uh, at your office, your neighbor. I know at Christmas time, there's one set of neighbors we've had, we have a hard time get to know, uh, have a hard time connecting, and I got a chance right right the Christmas season. I got to open the door. Uh, I was able to invite her to church. I came for the very first time. You may have a similar kind of opportunity. So uh, just be uh, on high alert with that. When you come next week at the, sun, the, the Saturday night and the two Sunday services, we will have a video cafe. Now, for those of you who have never been there, a video venue, for those of you who have never been to one, this is not an overflow room. This is an alternate, just a great experience where the 
uh, the, the message is being broadcast in live. Uh, you have live worship there. We will have cafes both inside, outside both venues. It's open to student center, so students are here, so you don't have to come and get your coffee and donuts here before you just can go there. Uh, so it should be just a great time. So uh, may the Lord bless you this week. Maybe you're praying about what he wants to do uh, in your life. May this be a week that you move a little bit more away from religion, a little bit more into relationship, uh, a week that you truly seek God for his calling in your life, a week that you, you have that conversation. God, is there anything in my life that maybe not be morally wrong, but there's just, uh, it's blunting my passion for you. It's slowing me down. Anything you want to say to me, and as we enter into that relationship, that we would be able to join Jesus on this path to life that he's called us. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great weekend.